0: Please visit anywhenanywhere.com for more information about this program. WTC
1: Radio. In the beautiful, beautiful anywhere and anywhere. anywhere.
0: It's our conversation with Peter Thomas. Wanting to be cool. Musician and Our teacher, and Eugene Orton. Come with us as we talk about cassette tapes and electronic music.
1: Wanting to be
0: cool. When you are young, you never really know what you will be remembered for, or uh, what path you're going to take as you get older. You never know what Things are going to lead to other things, what albums are going to inspire your creativity, or perhaps maybe not even music, but where you live might be the catalyst that leads to something new or different. Or maybe not wanting to live somewhere. Peter Thomas talks about the influence that leaving the East Coast had as much as discovering Tangerine Dream. And uh, it's that kind of not exactly sure of what the past will have for you in the present that uh, I think is underlined in the conversation that we have here today. Uh, Peter has a track included on the Switched on Eugene compilation, which is a collection of recordings made in the... Early to mid-80s, maybe as late as the early 90s. Uh, And um, this collection features a number of artists, Speeder included. uh, And uh, it tries to capture the world of the Eugene Electronic Music Collective, as seen through the eyes of Douglas McGowan, who put this collection together for the Numero group. He found these tapes... Uh, started getting into the music started collecting it started wanting to get in touch with the people who made it and that led to this collection but uh, that for many would be where the story ends except that each of these artists were not only people making stuff in the time and in the era that this compilation represents but they were doing things before and afterwards the notion that you know, this is somehow capturing a scene or whatnot kind of betrays the work that each individual has been doing for quite a while on their own, and, as it turns out, for quite a while afterwards. These days, Peter Thomas is known probably as a guitar instructor, uh, but he does play around in the classical world uh, a couple times a year, maybe three, four sometimes and uh you know works more behind the scenes and in that kind of quiet capacity but uh there was a time when he was working on wilder things certainly uh this electronic music is uh, a little bit weirder than uh what he would have been known for initially and that's probably some of his uh tangerine dream and yes uh interest popping up in his music but uh that is just kind of one section of his life. This uh, Numero Group compilation does a good job of collecting that work, but, you know, these artists have more to them. There's, I don't know, scope and vision and ideas, and uh, that kind of stuff can't really be captured in a Xeroxed black and white kind of reissue feel. Uh, That's something that you only get out of hunting these people down and trying to get out what their experiences were. I think with any kind of new place that you go or scene that you uncover, there is this experience where uh, you think that it represents something, that you have this kind of hold of a bigger picture. And then when you start digging into it, You realize that wow, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think if anything, my conversation with Peter underlines and highlights the very simple notion that to think one track on a collection represents Peter is very much looking at merely the tip of the iceberg. W T B C Radio in beautiful. This conversation was conducted by phone on November 26th, 2018. Well, you know, I think a good place to start is actually the House of Records event, um, which uh, I, you know, I popped in kind of to see what was going on and to check it out. And there was a ton of these, like, amazing, nerdy people crowded around a table asking questions of these people with. Old cassettes and zines and things, and I was like, mm, "This sounds like a party I need to be at."
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was very uh, very enjoyable. It was pretty pretty busy for the first hour and a half or so, and then uh, sort of th- didn't out after that. But mm-hmm,
0: yeah,
2: we we had a good had a good time.
0: Nice, and uh,
2: got got to meet some people that I didn't know before, and a couple of people I had hadn't seen in a long time, so
1: that was good.
0: Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Now, who set up that event? Was that uh, the uh, collective, or was that House of Records, or how did that come together?
2: Well, once the recording was coming out, I started mentioning to Doug that, well, maybe we should do something in Eugene. My original idea was actually to do a concert of electronic music, but hmm. I was thinking about—I didn't really start thinking about that till August, and it became clear to me that. Due to other commitments I had, I didn't really have enough time to work up a whole concert of electronic music. And I wasn't sure anyone else would come from far away, you know, bring their instruments and play. So right. I, I said, well, I don't, I don't know if we should do that. Maybe there's something else we can do. And, and Brian McGill actually came up with the idea of having it at House of Records.
0: Because mm. they used to carry the tapes back in the day.
2: That's right, they carried the tapes, and actually one of our original members, Daryl Parsons, worked there for a short period of time in the early days of the House of Records, like Mm. around, I think it started in 1979, and he probably worked there in 19. Eighty or something, <laughs> at least for a little, for a little while. I don't think he worked there for a long time. The people there now didn't really remember him, but right, you know, I didn't expect them to. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, and they did carry our they did carry our uh, cassette recordings in, in the past, and that's where one of the places I think Doug stumbled on some of the tapes that may led him to track me down and try and find out more about the collective.
0: Right, right. And and I remember, so my memory of this is coming at it from more of a early 90s point of view, but I remember those tape sections, uh, not just at House of Records, but at other places. And it, oh, right. Mm-hmm. And it really broke my mind open, because I was like oh, it doesn't have to be manufactured. You don't have to have a record deal. You know, <laughs> like it's suddenly right. my whole perspective right. changed. And, and so like I remember gobbling up tapes at uh, House of Records like crazy just because you couldn't hear that music anywhere else.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And that was that was a good thing about, you know, about cassettes. Some some people can buy, well, the well, sound quality is not as good as an LP and all that. But they were. Eminently usable by anybody that wanted to use them to record music. I mean, there were uh, at first there weren't any cassette porta studios, you know, multi-track cassette recorders. When right. I was first working, but you would record on a you know a larger multi-track machine, and then you could dub it down to cassette. And the cassettes were very easy to distribute you know, and make copies of, where, of course, in the 80s, making your own vinyl record was still very expensive.
0: <laughs> it's still very expensive now, you know. Uh, yeah,
2: I mentioned it is. I've 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 actually never done vinyl. I've released several CDs, but I've never done any vinyl.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about you getting into music, because, um, I mean, that event at House of Records was really great because it underlined this thing that I think... Um, is uh, kind of absent from a lot of commentary is that a lot of people work as musicians for years before the thing that they are known for actually even makes a splash. And then sometimes the splash comes like 10, 20 years later.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In this case, three years later than that. And
0: and then,
2: you know, it, it definitely, When we were doing the collective, we felt like we were reaching out to people. You know, we were definitely sending tapes all over the United States, and occasionally there were a few we sent to Europe, but mostly around the United States. We were sending them out to any radio station that had a program like yours or the New Dreamers Mm -hmm. free just to, you know, get airplay. And then we were also selling them. I think there was some trading going on more on an individual basis. As a group, we didn't necessarily offer to trade things, but if people sent us stuff, we, we did tell them that, we had a radio show <laughs> that we could play them on, and so right. a lot of people sent us stuff just so i have just on. Oh, yeah, we'll play this on your radio show, and so we got that was where we got a lot of stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to even wind the clock a little bit further back because uh, I mean I know you as a musician started out playing guitar, if I'm not mistaken.
2: That's right. Yeah, actually, that's my main. The main thing that I do with music is classical guitar. I, I studied classical guitar from the time I was so. About
1: thirteen,
2: oh. and uh, and in Eugene, what most people actually don't need for is playing the classical guitar. Mm-hmm.
0: They're more interested <laughs> in that, rock and roll or something.
2: the The electronic music is some, was you know something that I did, uh, did but it wasn't uh, you know I didn't. I guess I didn't promote it as much except through the EMC Where with the guitar, you know, I was teaching guitar lessons and I put on concerts and I did chamber music with a lot of other people. So. I was, you know, my guitar playing was out there a lot, and the electronic music was kind of like, oh well, I also do electronic music, and eventually I did did play synthesizers in the in the band called Mythic Sky that started oh in the late '80s. Right. Yeah. And uh, so I did do some start doing some performing on synthesizer then, but before that, everything I had done was classical guitar, as far as most people know,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that
2: that's what I spent on you know when I say oh, winter's a good time for practicing. That's what I'm talking about is I spend a lot of
1: time
0: in the playing my guitar. <laughs> right, right. Well, you, would you, what drew you to uh, guitar when you were 13? Because, you know, I know for a lot of kids at 13, they're looking at like, oh, I want to be like, you know, the Beatles, or I want to be like, you know, some rock and roll guitar player.
2: I kind of started off just generally, you know, I had wanted to play an instrument for quite a while, and for one reason or another, I didn't get into a band in high school or mm-hmm. anything, and so... He just bought a $20 you know, cheapo guitar and started playing it. And my parents saw that, oh, well, he must be pretty serious. he his own money on this and he's spending time practicing. So they, they had me get lessons. And after I'd been playing about six months um, for Christmas, I got a recording of Andre Segovia, the, the Spanish guitarist.
1: Mm. And when I heard
2: that, I just went, oh, wow, that's what I really like to do with the guitar. That's really beautiful and you can... You're, you don't need a band to play with. You can play all by yourself, and it sounds really great. And you've got all the parts, right. and so that was when I started to switch from just sort of general. I, I had learned to read music, and you know I could. And they had these books by this fellow Mel Bay,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: uh, they were you know widely distributed at that time. But they used mostly you know well-known folk songs and things like that that you to learn from.
0: Yeah, and I then, think I have my Mel Bay banjo book lying around here somewhere. Oh,
2: okay, yeah, <laughs> I've <I'm, laughs> I've seen those.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, it, it works. I can play a couple of songs on banjo.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, they they definitely. You know, there was uh, a good uh, method to the way that he was doing it. it was it was laid out nicely and mm-hmm. progressed evenly. You know, some instruction books are not very progressive and they jump around and <laughs> right. pretty soon <senior> you're confused. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was how I heard Segovia, and I just went, oh, I'd really like to play classical guitar. And um, within another year, I was you know, taking classical, strictly class. in that year, I started taking classical guitar lessons. It was actually a public education program by uh, Frederick Node that was like a 20-minute program on Saturday evenings, and it was called Playing the Guitar. And it taught oh. you to play classical, the basics of classical guitar over the television. You sent to the TV station for a book. And then he would teach you the basics and when you played the music, the music would be uh shown underneath, you know, the picture of him playing, he'd be playing it, but then it would show the music and there'd be a little pointer showing all the notes. Wow. And so that was that was one of the things that I started doing for early on for classical guitar. And then I found a real classical guitar teacher and started, you know, studying with him. But that was actually one of the first places I learned to play classical guitar
0: nice that's it's such a yeah i'm always very interested in like the musical vectors for how people discover music because um you know sometimes Uh it's the radio sometimes it's a friend gave me a tape or something but there's something very intimate about actually wrestling with the instrument as one of your first ways of like discovering music because i mean playing it and playing it is kind of one of the hardest things to do. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you can appreciate right. music way before you can play it. So, I mean, I, yeah. oh, that's fascinating.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah, and when you start out, you re- you, especially when you're, you know, a teenager or something, you start um, start playing. There's just it just seems like, oh, wow, this is just the greatest thing ever.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. E- yeah. Even
2: even if though you can't really do anything, you just you can see the potential, and you say, how if I work on this? I
0: can mm-hmm. do something with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you start to kind of connect the pieces where you're like, oh, so if I just keep doing this, I get better.
2: Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big discovery. And at, at at a certain point, I was like, oh, if I started practicing like two or three hours
0: a day, I, I'd actually start to really get somewhere. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's it's really fascinating because I think that those formative experiences do kind of set a path for people. You know, like. Mm -hmm. whatever your relationship early Mm -hmm. on with um, art or music or, um, or anything like that, uh, the way that you bond with it becomes like the practice that you keep well into old age, you know, like there's something about listening to the the radio, which was my kind of introduction to so much stuff where to this day, Mm -hmm. like that still feels like my way of connecting to music.
2: (laughs) Right. Oh yeah. No. And I, you know, I I spend a lot of time listening to the radio too. I'd say I, that the radio was a bigger influence on electronic music
1: because
2: mm-hmm. uh, well, there were there were, two, there were two things I think connected to the guitar. One of the things that drew me to the classical guitar is the great variety of tone colors you can get,
1: mm-hmm. and I think
2: that made my ear sensitive, very sensitive to different tone colors. And of course, when you start to play the synthesizer, you realize oh, I'm creating the tone color. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I can make up my own tone colors or through experimentation, I can find ones that I've never heard before. Right. So I kind of re- relate that to the to the guitar. And then when I was a teenager, the uh, the Retzalier Polytechnic Institute in New York had a radio station that was one of these underground FM stations where they pretty much just played anything all the time. <laughs> so they might have a piece piece by Ravi Shankar followed by... You know, maybe a classical piece, and then they play the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Oh wow! And that that was where I heard like that was the first place I ever heard the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and several other other people that I was later on Larry Fast. I think that was the first place I heard him. Mm. And so that was a definite influence too was that that particular radio station. I still remember you know at night. I'd go to bed, but I'd you know be listening to the W uh, R P I to hear you know the latest the latest music.
0: Right. You know, there's something about that. Um, oh yeah, mom, dad, I'm going to bed and and listening to the radio. That like it, yeah, it feels like so transgressive and so important.
2: Yeah, it just opened up a whole new another world of sounds that I wasn't hearing anywhere else. You know, my I think that that radio station. And the library in the town nearby us that had a pretty good record collection. Hmm. And I did spend a fair amount of time exploring that, mostly classical music, hmm.
0: but some other music too. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, you know, uh, I, again, I grew up in a small town. And so, like, radio and libraries was kind of my window to the world.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Me, the town I grew up in was pretty small. There was a larger city of maybe. Oh, sixty thousand people, mm-hmm. about a half an hour away, that we would go to maybe once a week, and I did. That was where I had my library card. They had a good library.
0: <laughs> it's time for Dial a song. Hey, what the hi? It's John F. of They Might Be Giants, and you're listening to Austin Rich on WTBC Radio in beautiful Anywhere, Anywhen. It's a podcast with Austin, and this is They Might Be Giants' song of the week. This is the latest from us. It's our dial song.
1: Eustace, Muriel, somebody's at the door. Creepy, surreal, someone better get the door. Someone better get the door. Who's gonna get the door? Courage the Carolly Dog. Courage the Cowardly Dog Something horrible wants to destroy our humble Nowhere, shack. who will protect our home? Someone protect our home, who will protect our home? Courage the Cowardly Dog, Courage the Cowardly Dog
0: One thing that I have found very fascinating about Eugene uh, over the years is that, um, and maybe this is slowing down a little bit these days, but it seems that historically it's been a place where people come to and they kind of meet other artists who are also searching. Um, Was that kind of your inspiration for coming out to the West Coast, or was it something else?
2: Well... You know, I, I was living in Buffalo, New York and I went I went to college there and I didn't have the greatest college experience <laughs> and my brother lived out in Oregon, and then eventually I just had this feeling I had to get away from the East Coast. I mean, mm. as I said, in, in the bio, too. And it was something that struck Doug, I guess. But I realized, I just had this feeling like, i got to get out of this place. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not, I not—I wasn't exactly sure. You know, I couldn't put my finger on any particular thing like, oh, there's this person I hate, or, oh, I can't see on this, or whatever. It was just, oh, i got to get out of here. Right. And so I, I came out, and I, I had almost no money at all. Luckily, my brother you know, put me out but. Um, when I did get out here, I did kind of feel like, you know, there was a music scene. It was fairly diverse. There was a lot of punk going on. I moved out here in you know, late 1979. Right. You know, to and so there was a lot of punk going on, but there was also, you know, just a whole feeling of like musicians wanting to get in touch with each other and try different things. Yeah. And that, that, that was very, very, uh, prominent in the, the early times, and I would say that that certainly has continued to some degree. I know, you know that uh, there is still some of that going on. Mm. It was, I think, it was very strong in the in the eighties when I came out, and had you know started to go down a little bit in the nineties. Mm. You know, with, with with the internet coming out, right, that kind of started to siphon off that sort of thing where people were like, oh, well, I you know I can get in touch with this person anywhere on the computer (laughs) i think it was a little less you know it made it a little less attractive oh i should go to a concert and there'll probably be people that like the same music there and maybe we can start a band or something right you know
0: that kind of thing you know know, it's so funny my entire memory of eugene i didn't really get online until after i left so (laughs) like my entire memories of eugene days are entirely like Writing letters and trading tapes—it—it seems like a whole other universe, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you
2: know, I still write letters, but I don't know too many people who write letters anymore.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, well, uh, so here, I mean, I guess this is probably what led you to, now, you know, this is a throwaway kind of note in the um, bio, but I thought it was interesting—the Eugene Guitar Association. Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. well, what how that happened was? there was a guitarist who moved to Eugene that told Neil Archer Rohn, And it's kind of funny. I had never heard of the guy, and I was you know hooked into classical guitar, but he was doing fifty concerts, serious concerts. I mean, he played Carnegie Hall and places like that Whoa. <laughs> at Aiba. and I and the thing the thing of it was he was a really well trained businessman, and so he knew how to make contacts with people. And get things going. And so, when he moved to Eugene, he contacted uh, a dozen different guitar teachers of all different styles, and said, "We're going to start this guitar association here in Eugene, and Eugene needs to have a guitar group. And you know, I'll, I'll be glad to help." spearheaded but I need these people and he started like a steering committee that met for a year before the group was even official. Wow. And that was just the sort of way he did things. Hmm. He was a very high level professional businessman as well as a really good artist. I mean he was I hadn't heard of him play heard of him, but when I heard him play I was like, Oh, this guy's a real thing. <laughs> he was a top level classical guitarist, you know. Right. And and uh, he had that aspect of the business and so he put the guitar association pretty much together himself by contacting these guitarists. And most of them were like, oh, yeah, okay, let's do this. There were, there were a couple of them were like, yeah, no, no I don't have time for that. <laughs>
1: but he
2: got the main classical guitarists in town, the main jazz guitarists, and a couple of folk guitarists to become involved in starting the group. And then after that, those people were involved in running it for the next few years. And we, you know, we, the first year they we put on concerts, there were concerts at the Holt Center. And mm. at the Soaring Theater there they had uh Scott Kreicher, who's a wonderful probably the best classical guitarist in Oregon, mm. played. But we also had the Assad Brothers who were like the world's premier classical guitar duo. Oh, yeah. And uh the years after that we we sort of shot a little bit lower, but we still were putting on our concerts, uh you know, nice concert halls and things like that. And we put out a newsletter every other month. It was called Vibrations. I was, I was the editor of that, and hmm. had stuff about what we were going to do. But it also had articles about, oh, you know, aspects of playing the guitar.
0: <laughs> How did and, you uh, fall into the editor position on that? Was that kind of like through who else is willing to do it? Or? Yeah,
2: it was one of the, it was one of those things where you know we would get together and people would go, oh, well, you know, what, what do you get at? And I had at uh, least had some some skill at writing things, hmm. you know, like being able to, to write. And I like doing it. So I offered to become the editor to the newsletter. Yeah. You're not really knowing exactly what that was to involved. But.
0: <laughs> it is unfortunately a thankless job as someone who's done a lot of editing in the past and uh uh-huh. sometimes your your name is even left off of the things that finally get right. printed and so it's like after you kind of did all of this work putting it together, it's like the two writers get, like, the credit and then maybe the publisher. <laughs> right. right. Yeah.
2: So. And the one thing that happened with the Guitar Association that didn't happen with the Electronic Music Collective, and why collective actually lasted longer than the Guitar Association,
1: mm.
2: was that the Guitar Association was never able to replace the original people with new people to take over. And mm. so... Eventually, it boiled down to myself and, and one other guitarist who were doing everything, right. and we put out, you know, put out feelers saying, "Well, you know, we can't do this all on our own, and please volunteer to help." And I, after about a year, when we just didn't have anybody come forward, we said, "Well, we're going to fold the group if nobody comes forward." And no one came forward, so we ended up folding it. So that group only lasted about five years, where the collective had new members come in all the time. You know, when Carl left. He was—I think he and Peter Nastinger were the first people who left in the first couple of years. But we already had people like Joel Horwitz who came on and who, even after Brian and Nathan left, he was kind of get the thing going. And then after him, there was another fellow, Andre Chin, who sort of took on that role. And he was also doing the New Dreamers, so we still had that connection with right. the radio show.
0: Yeah, this and is so, the KLCC. Yeah, that
2: made a big difference.
0: Yeah, that was on KLCC. Yeah. Now, this is something I only ever heard about because I think it was a little before my time. Um, but uh, my mom later worked at KLCC, so that was kind of oh. how I uh, I, mm-hmm. I even heard about it. <laughs> but again, more in the 90s and, and kind of past um, when it was around. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, so that's kind of cool. I mean, having radio station access like that to kind of help cultivate and play material definitely helps keep a little organization running afloat.
2: Yes, it did. And, you know, because we could say that, oh, we have you know a radio program that we'll play your music on, people would send us their music, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, just cassettes and so on.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, let's talk and, about how that got started. Mm-hmm. So you're in the uh, Eugene Guitar Association, and as you're saying, it's got, like, some big-name people and some cool elements to it but um no one really kind of willing to take the reins and go um is this when the um eemc gets started or how does how does that first kind of formulate
2: yeah i think the you know i think the guitar association i believe started in the first year when Neil did the steering committee, I think it was nineteen eighty two and then the first official year where we you know put on programs and stuff was eighty three mm. so it had been going for a year or two before the collective started got it and so when I talked to I think Brian was the first person I met before there was a collective. I met him at the u of O somehow mm-hmm. and i- t- talked to him and um. Somewhere along the line, he said, "Oh, well, you know, my friend Carl and Nathan and I were, were kind of thinking about putting the group together. Are you interested?" And so I was, "Oh yeah, I'm sure I'm definitely interested. In that. Let's get together." Mm-hmm. And so I was already aware that, oh, you know, there's some more power in these groups that they can help you to get your music out there, or get get more known, and also just help you to find out more about your art.
0: Right. You know,
2: that was that was a big part of the collective too was. That oh some of these people know more about synthesizers or electronic music than I do, and they'll you know be willing to share that. I mean, right uh, Peter Noggle was teaching classes at at KLCC. I mean at LCC, not KLCC, mm. the, the community college, and I uh, did take one of his classes that was called recording and synthesizers part of it was, about half of it was working, you know, learning to multi-track, and the other half was learning about synthesizers. Mm. And he was definitely, in the group, he was definitely the technical expert. I mean, he could, you know, open a synthesizer and tell you what was going on in there.
0: <laughs> Got it, yeah. Now, I think some context is very helpful, too, because, uh, you know, in the early 80s, it's not like electronic music was huge. It wasn't like it was, you know... No. I mean, like, it was kind of a neat, I mean, like, you had New Wave, which was very different. It had synthesizers in the music, but it wasn't, right. it wasn't the focus. Right.
1: You,
2: exactly, yeah, you were definitely hearing more synthesizers in popular music, like you say, in in the New Wave area you were hearing it, and groups like the Human League were mm-hmm. pretty heavy synthesizer sounding. Right. And so you did, you did hear it there, but there was definitely, that was the time when I think There were a lot of people like us that were like, yeah, electronic music and synthesizers, we're going to get that out there. Mm -hmm. And there was the um, International Electronic Musicians Association that was a group out of Salamanca, New York. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much a one-man show, but this guy was pretty motivated. And he put out a newsletter, and he was in contact with well-known synthesis, you know, around the world.
0: <laughs> right, yeah.
2: And he was he was putting out reviews, and his newsletter also had technical stuff in it. There was that. There was also a, a brief newsletter that was very good called Cynics. Mm. It became two fellows from California. Robert Carlberg was one of them, and I don't remember the other guy's name right now. But uh, they had a really nice newsletter. You had to contribute to it to get it. Oh. So... You know, it was one of these things they were trying to get a forum going. So I contributed. I sent them a thing about electronic music happening in Eugene. Oh, nice.
1: <laughs> and
2: uh And, you know, if you send them one thing a year or something, they kept you on. It only lasted a couple of years. Eventually it broke down with, you know, some infighting about... There was a lot of philosophical stuff. And then about, you know, oh, is this good music or is this just garbage? <laughs> and, you know... <laughs> there was some heavy-duty. It was sort of early, you natural, like, sort of almost.
0: <laughs> right. It right, was before the internet, in a way.
2: Exactly. It was before the internet, yeah. yeah. And so that, that led to the demise of that. But that was another, to me, it was just, there were these little eruptions. The Synex, mm-hmm. the International Electronic Musicians Association, there was actually a magazine called Electronic Musician
1: mm-hmm. that
2: was, uh, that was quite, quite a good magazine that, Uh, You can look up Back Issues online.
1: Mm -hmm. It was
2: out at that time. And you could buy it down to, I mean, I remember seeing it at the local uh, bookstore down in in Eugene at the time. So it was kind of like, oh, this is starting to rise to the surface.
1: Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm. Really getting out there. We're in the 70s when I first heard it. It was something, you know, if you mention electronic music to people, unless. Unless it was Wendy Carlos probably. Right. They didn't know anything about it.
0: Or you know, maybe Tangerine Dream if you were lucky, they would know. Maybe, yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah. They were certainly the ones that uh, Tangerine Dream and Carl Schultz were the ones that got me into electronic music, really. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. I, I
2: had been listening to I had listened to Wendy Carlos Switched on Bach and I'd you know, I'd love that. I had two, I think a, three three albums of classical music that she did. Right. And I'd heard Larry Bass. On the WRPI, so I, I knew a little bit. But when I went to college, I met a fellow who was already into Tangerine Dream, and he, he played one there. All of their albums and sudden, I went, "Oh my god, this is the music I'm waiting for."
0: <laughs> it does sound like the future. Yeah. Even when I discovered it in like 1995, I was like, "Oh my uh-huh. gosh, this sounds like futuristic," but it's like exactly. pff, you know, it's it's old. <laughs> you know, so right. it, it, it's one of those things that I think. Um, I think it's why people aren't quite ready for it too, and why it didn't really reach the popular consciousness is that it does sound yeah. so far outside of pop music.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, they took a good good tack where they did so many music uh movie soundtracks. Yeah. And when people hear those hear sounds like that in movies, then they're like a little more used to it when they hear it suddenly in a in a pop song or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. They go, Oh, I've heard those kind of sounds before now. So I think it helps them work, in the, work it into their consciousness to degree. I mean, you could say a lot of the uh, 40s and 50s movie composers used the music uh, styles of Stravinsky or Schoenberg at times to create tension, but it didn't lead to a big enjoyment of the music of Stravinsky and Schoenberg worldwide, worldwide unfortunately.
0: Right, for sure, for sure.
2: But I think that... The Tangerine Dream were more successful with that, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. and
2: and that helped you get that sound out there, for sure. And then you got people like Ian Hammer, who got into synths and then was doing the music to Miami Vice and things like that. <laughs> I think that probably had had some influence too,
0: for sure. Well, yeah, you know, like like we were saying, synthesizers were certainly in the air uh, in those days. Uh, but it, um, yeah. music that was kind of predominantly synthesizer and electronic made. Wasn't as as common as as people would like you to think. You know, like the revisionist history has kind of painted this um, electronic yeah. version of yeah. the early '80s, and in reality, it was like a lot of conventional instruments with one synthesizer in the corner.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, and you would you would hear it in in there be songs, and sometimes it would just be there for some. You know, filter feedback effect or something like that that was right. would stand out, but really wasn't for electronic music. People it was like, "Oh, well, that's like the first thing you can do when you walk up to a synthesizer."
0: <laughs> so, getting this group together of people who not only kind of understood that relationship between popular music and synthesizers, but then were also active in kind of creating current and new uh, music—that must have been a big shift, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that was. And it was nice, you know, in our own group, you know, we had people like Brian and Nathan who, those guys listen to everything. <laughs> you know, I can't think of a genre of music that they're not familiar with, and, and especially Brian was into seeking out, you know, the oddest kind of weird things that, that you could find out there. But he also knew, you know, prog rock, and probably knew what was going on in pop music, just, you know, through that's motion. Right. But, uh, yeah, those guys have a lot of very, very out there music, and uh, it, it was good to meet them, and you get exposed to even more music, you know, than say, the Berlin School or some of the other music that I've been listening to.
0: WTBC Radio is also sponsored by Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce. Locally made in Portland, Oregon, Peggy's Sauce is 100% vegan and 100% ready for you to experience a taste explosion you'll want again and again. Available in three flavors, Hottermelon, Ghostberry, Five Star Gary, Carolina Reaper. That's with avocados. For more information about Peggy's Sauce, including ordering inquiries, please visit Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce all one word, on either Facebook or Instagram. Let me say it one more time. Peggy's Vegan Hot Sauce. When you need a little something with an extra kick. Now, is this about when you finished the Hours Away album slash cassette? Yeah, it
2: was right around when I was finishing that up, I think is when when I met Brian and The Collective got started. Mm -hmm. Because I... Pretty much had kind it of done, and I was like, oh, well, this would be a way for me to sell the hours away if we you know, start selling these things now. 'Cause Because I had been selling them either just myself, and I was selling them out of the, the, that local New Age bookstore, Peralondra.
0: Oh, and, yeah, I I, and, I I only heard about this, again, before my time.
2: <laughs> oh, I know it was a very good store. It, had a, it was in a couple different locations over time, but music was... You know, definitely something, and they sold a lot of cassettes and they did have a lot of, they had a whole local artist section, they didn't just sell you know, whoever was famous, like at the time, you know say mm. the Windham Hill guys were big at that time Right so, and that was popular in there, and they also when Stephen and was sort of the original, or, you know, a lot of people thought of him as inventing new age music or whatever, even though it had been around for a while mm-hmm. and they, she sold his, his stuff, so, you know, I was selling my tapes there, but Obviously, it wasn't selling tons of them, and definitely sold more through the
1: collector.
0: Yeah, well, and, and again, trying so, to establish context, you know, this is not something mm-hmm. that is on the Internet. This is not a cassette that you can c- go and buy now. It's it's kind of this thing that, like, it was part of this DIY self-perpetuating system, yeah. you know, of people making things on their own and then trying to make a living with it. That's
2: right, yeah, and that's what, you know, always Uh, uh, That was sort of the thing that made me feel like, oh, okay, I know I do a recording studio and I can record these compositions. And so, you know, eventually I did a a guitar recording after feeling like, okay, and I didn't record that myself. with the guitar, I've always gone to their professional studios and hired people to do all the engineering and stuff. For right. electronic music, I've always done it all myself.
0: <laughs> well, and that's one of the th- the benefits of electronic music is that it's one of the few areas where you can do it all yourself. Really?
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, and I think that was something that that drew me to it too, because you know when I was growing up, I, I studied composition formally, and so. I mostly wrote piano pieces because mm-hmm. my teachers were pianists and they could sight read pretty much anything I could write and go, well, oh, here's what it sounds like. And yeah, this part really sounds kind of cool. And that part, I don't think you knew what to write.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so
2: when I got into synthesizers and I saw, oh, with a multi track recorder, I can come up with my own music that sounds in the, in the genre that I like. And. It's kind of like writing your own orchestral music only with without the traditional instruments.
0: For sure, for sure. Yeah, there's something that's uh, very freeing about making that discovery where you, you suddenly, you no longer have to be a part of this larger organization. You can do the whole song yourself, like... I think it breaks things open for a lot of musicians.
2: Yeah. And that's something I, I think people don't appreciate that right now because because now it does seem like, oh well you have to just go on the internet and whatever you create you can get get out there. Right. In the eighties it was like, Well, I can make all this stuff up, but what do I do with it? How do I get how do other people get it?
0: Yeah. Well, and that
2: was one one reason to start the collective.
0: Yeah. Well and it was also this kind of like the collective allowed you to plug into this other network of other artists, you know, who we're doing zines yeah. and tape trading and, you know, like trying to be outside of the system.
2: Right. And it did, it did give the feeling that, oh, we're, we're kind of part of a movement here. I know when we did the second cassette compilation for the EMC Northwest Passages, that was the one we solicited throughout the whole Northwest. And, mm. you know, we got things from Jeff Grinke and Kay Leimer, and both of those were guys that had, you know, actual records out <laughs> and i felt like oh well you know we're like a step down from those guys but we're right in the same league with them we're doing what they're doing just at a like lower level you know we haven't can get quite the uh machinery to, to get out lps but other than that we were doing a very similar thing and they must have thought our stuff was okay or they wouldn't have submitted their stuff to be on it
0: <laughs> right yeah so
2: it, it felt like Oh, okay, yeah, we're part of something here.
0: Yeah, well, again, I know this is not a new idea, but it levels the playing field for artists who feel like it's an uphill battle to release music.
2: Yeah, definitely, especially in the early 80s, it really seemed like there was a big wall between, oh, if you're not famous, how do you get to do anything? Mm. And how do you get to be famous anyway if you can't get your music out there for people to hear it? It seemed like there was a big wall. Of like, wow! There's this huge thing you got to get by somehow in order to get the ball rolling for yourself. And I don't think people think of it. It doesn't seem quite that way now. And and you know, there's also all these things out here now. I mean, you don't see electronic musicians on them, but there's things like America's Got Talent and American Idol. There's all these things where right. people are like, they're trying to find people that have talent. And in the '80s, it was like, eh, we don't really care if anybody has talent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right well they liked the gatekeeping because it related it in just the right level of like Exactly. Like,
2: yeah that's a good that's a good description
0: yeah. it
2: did feel like that yeah mm-hmm. and it was like oh how do you get to know the gatekeepers so we
0: like him <laughs> right so it must have been pretty satisfying like you know you join this collective and then like you have this album out and then you have songs on these compilations that are being distributed and not just locally distributed but kind yeah. of around around the nation, that must have been like, you Mm -hmm. know, to go from like, oh, I'm this unappreciated musician who's kind of struggling to, oh, wow, people actually know my name.
1: (laughs)
2: Exactly, yeah. No, it it did feel like an accomplishment, it did feel like uh, a real path to becoming, you know, a more serious musician, someone whose work was actually listened to. Right, and it wasn't uh, sort of piling up in a corner where, oh yeah, I made all these cassettes, but nobody's ever heard about them. That just sort of seemed kind of seemed kind of pointless to me.
0: Yeah, well, and and you know, like one thing that it kind of hints at, uh, you know, we've kind of danced around this issue, but we're talking about uh, this col- compilation that got released by Numero Group, um, Switched On mm-hmm. Eugene. We've danced around the, 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 the topic a little bit here. Uh, but um, mm-hmm. in the compilation, it would be very easy and misguided to assume that it just kind of begins and ends with what's on the comp, you know? Um, right. But these artists like yourself, you, you had a career afterwards as well. I mean, the EM, EEMC was only, what, about 10 years
2: together? Yeah, I think, it, I think it was roughly 10 years. It was the early 90s sometimes when it, it stopped, you know. Ray Song was the last person who was sort of, he had the mailbox key, and he was doing a lot of the mailing of stuff. But it, it, it we definitely, the whole do-it-yourself scene seemed to be shrinking. Mm. And as well, the internet was starting up, and electronic music changed when MIDI came in. Oh,
0: now, yes, of course.
2: That, that really changed things, and that was when electronic instruments also began. Sort of exploded. Like there were way more different synthesizers, and then there was the whole MIDI thing. It was like for years it was like, oh, how do we make all these things work together? And then there was MIDI, and I was like, oh, well now you can make all these things work together if you can figure out how MIDI works. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of changed, changed things. I, I, to you know, in some ways it changed the music. I think, right? Too, because it became a little more you know, I, can't, I don't want to say it became more mechanical, but there was something about the way that it was put together that became maybe just slicker, I don't know.
0: Mm, like the production but style it, it, got a little yeah, smoother. It, it, exactly,
2: right. And it, and it it changed to some degrees. I think it changed changed the quality, and it changed the kind of um, you know, the sort of people that just wanted to dig down and experiment and mm. figure out these these strange devices. It was almost like Oh well, now you don't really have to do any of that.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah, well, and yeah. those people that wanted to experiment, I feel like got pushed further and further out. You know, where it's like, oh well, you're no longer yeah. doing electronic music; you're doing experimental music. You know,
1: and... Right,
2: right. And and the synthesizers themselves became less open ended.
0: Right. You know,
2: and the analog synthesizers, like an ARP twenty six hundred, there was a very little from the builders that sort of said. Yeah, this is the direction your instrument's gonna go. It was kind of well, here's all this stuff so and just do whatever you want with it. Where when MIDI came along and, and the companies like Yamaha and Cord got really big, the synthesizers became, you know, there was sort of a a narrowing down of what they were expected to be able to do.
1: Right and, and
2: how much how much you were able to control them and how much was pre fed to you. Mm-hmm. You know, with an R-2600, nothing's pre set to you.
1: <laughs> right,
0: with, you're uh, setting it all up yourself.
2: <laughs> uh, exactly right. And then when you get up to the like the DX seven or something, it was like, oh well, now there are certain things that are you know, oh there's all these cool bells, but you know, it, there was also not. It was really hard to figure out. Well, how did you make all those cool sounds that this thing does? You know, mm-hmm. the synthesizer's got. They were very uh, much more abstract, too. Analog synthesizers are very sort of, oh, yeah, there's a signal path and it goes from here to here to here. And then suddenly it became, oh, we push this button and then push that button.
0: Right. <laughs>
2: it, that changed things a lot. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm,
2: I'm sure you understand that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's, de- you know, I, I was thinking about uh, this a little bit. Um, you know, just uh, in terms of like the the way we remember things and whatnot, and you know, I think a lot of people from after the fact look back and they go like, "Oh, it was so great when since simplifi- the synthesizers got simpler, because oh, I could finally like integrate it into my band without having to learn how to program or something." Um, Right, And in a way, it's like you are suddenly like this whole skill, this whole um, creative talent that people had developed over the years of learning to play these synthesizers was disappearing in favor of people who were just kind of plugging it into this larger sound.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. It became more a keyboard instrument. Right. And with the instrument of composers, mm. I think maybe that, that's one of the differences.
1: Yeah. That it
2: became more of a, oh, if you're Rick Weekman, this is cool, as opposed to if you are, you know, say, Klaus Schultz or someone like that who just spend a lot of time, oh, let's connect this to that and see where it going. Oh, that's a good sound. I'll make a composition out of it.
0: You know, I, I, again, uh, we could get um, bogged down in the past, but... Uh, I want to talk about something that's current. I mean, you, after the EEMC, you you kept doing music stuff. We we mentioned that you were in uh, Mythic Sky, um, and that's uh, right. Whatnot, but uh, you to this day, you're you're a guitar teacher.
2: That's right. Yes, I continue to teach classical guitar and perform. I, I do a lot of chamber music. I, you know, I'm playing a flute and guitar duo. I play in a guitar duo, two two classical guitars, and I work with singers. So I, I did, do a lot of a lot of classical music and uh perform, you know, in concert at least a couple three times every year.
1: Very cool.
2: Sounds am still, still doing that. And I did the you know, I was with Mythic Sky. The Mythic Sky lasted from the end of the eighties to I think lasted about oh, I think maybe it started at eighty nine and went to ninety eight. Mm. So it was almost for ten years.
0: Yeah, and I really remember seeing Flyers when I first moved to Eugene. Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. we did play on the Daytel Fan, the fellow who started the group. Uh, he was real motivated, and he did a lot of you know promotion to get performances, and that, that group definitely played regularly. Mm-hmm. And it was a good chance for me to uh, learn to play synthesizers live. Right. I, I had my game s 20 and a sequencer, and I ended up buying a... Digital FM synthesizer, polyphonic synthesizer, on you know, the YS200 from Yamaha, hmm. and those were, those are the main things that I used. The other thing I used was a Roland. I had a Roland 501 Space Echo, and that was that was one of my favorite devices.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is probably and the that, other thing that we could do if I was a little more um, synth heavy is gear talk because uh, uh-huh. you you, know, you guys had on display at House of Records some vintage synth uh, that uh, I, was it yours or who, who's was it that was there well the, pic-
2: the pictures that you see in the switch on Eugene of all the equipment that was a time when we pooled equipment between myself Nathan Brian and Daryl mm. and uh, Nathan and Brian were living in an apartment it was actually up in the same building as that Paralander bookstore upstairs.
1: Mm. And they
2: had a room that they turned into a studio and at one point we all brought over stuff. I brought over my M S twenty and I think Daryl brought one of his over and he brought his R twenty six hundred and Darren uh, Nathan and Brian had a bunch of equipment there. <laughs> and we just put it we just put it all in there and people would go, Oh, I'd like to come over and use the equipment for, you know, are somebody gonna be around and he could go if they weren't using it, you go in and learn with it and so, yeah, we bought a lot of it together.
0: That's very
1: cool. And
2: so it was a mixture of people's equipment. I mean, you know, and, you know like you see that picture of me where I'm, you know, playing on the synthesizer. Some of those are Daryl's. One of them, the MS20, is mine. The R2600 was definitely Daryl's. There was a cat that I think was Brian's or Nathan's. And <laughs> there, was, there was just a, everybody had equipment there. Yeah. And we just kind of all put it together. And, and it wasn't that way for a while. And then I think they ended up having to move, and that was when we took that down.
0: Hmm. Now, in in terms of the compilation, because I mean, we've mentioned it a few times here, do you think it's a pretty good representation of the EEMC? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've, I've listened to it a
2: lot, several different times. Like when it first came out, I listened to it a bunch. Then I stopped listening to it. Then I did that again. And I've been trying to figure out, you know, there's... I really like it. I think it is very well done. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it looks like what we would have done back in the '80s, <laughs> even though you know, if if we were still around, and we did it now, it would look totally different. But I think they tried to capture, you know, the feel of what we did—the the whole black and white and the photocopied, you know, artwork and stuff. And I think they did a really nice job on that. The, the booklet and the bios, I think, are well done. Although everyone seems to say, "Oh, there's something in my bio that's not right," like Carl. <laughs> So it, it, it and that he was born in Lake in Lake Washington or something. Right. <laughs> he, I
0: think Carl was handing out reader. this um, yeah. little uh, flyer. My story of the uh, right. His, see, little, which, his little correction, right. right. <laughs> which is kind of charming because I, he hits on this right away. The memories of these kinds of things are different depending on who you talk to because it's a collective. You know exactly. One person's exactly. experience is different than the others
2: yeah everyone had did have a different uh, experience of of the group, and I'd say overall, you know there were a few things that I thought stood out. One thing that stood out to me was there's five songs on there with vocals, mm. and if you went through all the electronic music collectives releases, you would find that ninety five percent of it was instrumental, and <laughs> in that <laughs> they found every the once five. In a while there yeah, and I think that was one of those things. They they were like, "Well, people like vocals. We should we should try to have as many vocals as possible." Mm-hmm. So there are certain things that, they, that I think they had some agendas going on that they needed to have as a record company, in order to hope to sell the thing.
1: Right. And I think
2: that was that was one of the things at the House of Records thing. It was playing, and at one point I turned to Brian and I went, "Well, our recordings were weirder than this," <laughs> <laughs> and. And it and I think that they did a pretty good job of getting some weird stuff in there. I mean, there's a fair amount of stuff that if it wasn't if I try to think outside my own musical experience of what's, you know, weird or not, I think, oh well the other person would actually find that to be weird where you think that's totally normal. So I think that it's more weird than we think it was.
0: <laughs>
1: than
2: we think it is, but that our impression is that if the EMC had done it, it would have been weirder.
0: <laughs> mm, well that, it, and <laughs> that's kind and of. And that's again, that goes
2: to, well, they have to sell records, and if it's, it's, you know, completely, totally weird, they probably figure, yeah, no one's going to buy that.
0: <laughs> it would become itself another niche item rather than.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think they did it. It was very listenable. It goes from one cut to the next really nicely. Yeah. And all the examples are, all the examples, you know, I know the recordings that a lot of them came from, like, you know, the original members, Peter nott and Carl Juarez and Nathan Griffith and Brian McGill and I, I I have there all those recordings that they took the things from mm-hmm. and I think they did a nice job, you know, it wasn't like, I thought they picked good pieces from all those recordings Right. and, you know, they didn't ask which piece you wanted to be on there <laughs> and yet, the piece they chose for me was one I really like it wasn't the piece I might have chosen but, I'm totally happy with it.
0: This is the uh, shimmer the um, recording that yeah. uh, is included mm-hmm. on the comp, and, and you even talk about this a little bit. Um, it was like an improvisational piece that was mostly yeah. built off of a specific synthesizer.
2: Yeah, I was at the Davis uh, Studio and working with the Prophet Five, and I played something, and it was a. Uh, it was a combination of the tones, but also the harmonies that I was playing. Mm. And I recorded them, and I thought, oh, I can really do something with this. And I went back and put a couple more layers on. And, I, and after listening to it, I, I actually thought, oh, well, this is actually really good, because there's nothing mechanical about this piece.
1: You know, there's
2: no <laughs> and there's no, re- there's no real repetition. It's not like, oh, there's an A section and a B section, and then they repeat. It pretty much goes straight through with just, it sounds similar, but it's always new stuff. Yeah. And so I thought, oh well that's that's kind of a nice thing to have on there. You know, it's, and it's sort of oh yeah, that electronic music they use all those arpeggiators, sync and they just push a button and well, that piece was every note was played by a person on a well, keyboard.
0: And it sounds very organic too, like um you know, unlike a lot of synthesized stuff, especially now, which sounds specifically mechanical and machine like, uh, this piece exactly. has a very human flavor to it that
2: uh Yeah. And that, that was something that I think the, the Prophet 5 was actually very good at. Mm. It didn't have that sort of instant electronic music sound to it. It was like, oh, what is that sound? <laughs> and then you go, oh, that must be a synthesizer. And I, I think that piece took, took advantage of that a lot. Nice. So, yeah, I think I think the New Bernal Group did a really good job. I think, you know, having gotten to know Doug over the last three years, he was really dedicated to this project, and he really likes this music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I think Brian is right that, you know, you could say Numero Group is a sort of musical anthropologist and that they have a certain formula that they apply to the stuff that they find. Right. And that's – but that formula is what helps them sell the stuff,
1: mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm.
2: And so it makes – it's fine with me because within the formula – I don't see anything to complain about. I mean, all that stuff was stuff we released.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, it
2: was all our music, and it was just, you know, what their choice is. And sure, if you handed hundreds of electronic music pieces to me and said, put out the other compilation, it would be different. But <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think it would be so different that you would go, oh, yeah, yeah." That's, you know, apples and oranges. I think any of us would have created something that would sound somewhat like what they came up with right and there's certain things like the vocals that okay they, they probably emphasize that more than we were mm-hmm.
0: for sure for sure
2: but i got to that i even like those songs at first there were a couple of months like oh i don't know if i really like that and then they they kind of grew on me
0: with multiple listenings. nice nice I, lo- I love it when albums do that too where your initial uh, uh inclination is actually uh different after a few listens so
2: yeah, and I really tried when, you know, it would have been easy to jump to conclusions. Oh, well, that's not what I would have done. I really, I really tried not to do that. I just, hmm. you know, when I started talking to Doug, I, early on in the process, I went, oh, this is not my project, it's not the EMC's project, and it's not going to come out the way you want it to. Hmm,
1: so yeah. could,
2: I tried to just funnel him information and give him all the stuff he needed and, and stay back and go, okay, these guys are going to put something out. And you just have to hope you like it.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure.
2: And and I think considering that, I think it came out really well. And people that were not involved in the project who've listened to it seem to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's good. If you want it,
1: you can have it. But you got to learn to reach out there and grab it.
0: If you are looking for professional photography and contemporary style and glamour, then J. Jean Portraits is your destination. Based right here in Salem, Oregon, just like this podcast, J. Jean Portraits can offer the right kind of photos for the project that you have in mind. To help wet the whistle of people interested in J. Jean Portraits, we are holding a contest for the person or artist who would like to do a little photo shoot on us. Please, Send an email to austinrich at gmail.com and explain why you should have your band, art project, or whatever photographed in a short paragraph. And the most interesting entry will receive a full photo shoot package courtesy of J. Jean Portraits. You do not want to miss out on this opportunity to get professional quality photography for free. So please enter to win a free photography package with J Jean portraits. That's jjeanportraits.com, a professional look tailored specifically for you. Well, in my last kind of thoughts that I had on all this, um, it, it, it kind of goes back to the Wendy Carlos Tangerine Dream thread in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. there was a point in electronic music history where it felt like it was a composer's genre, you know, that that, like uh, people who made this music were going to be more of a classical tradition, gonna have more of um, a compositional uh, desire when they're creating things, that sort of thing. Uh, And I feel Mm -hmm. like in certain ways this group the EEMC kind of captures the very end of that era. Because, I mean, kind of after that, into the 90s, anybody who's doing electronic music is kind of doing, like, dance, club, glitchy right. kinds of things, less compositional, um, with a few exceptions, of course. But um, I, I was mm-hmm. just kind of curious, uh, when you got started, was that your take, too? Or, or, or what I guess, what was the take of... People at the time considering this divide was it something that um you guys thought about a lot, or was it something that was really only notable after the fact?
1: <laughs> you no,
2: know, I think it's. A, I think some of us were aware of it. I mean, at least three of us, the original members, were classically trained. You know, okay. Brian, Peter Knopfegel, and myself. And and uh, definitely, I came at it from the aspect of a composer. Hmm. And wanting to be able to do, you know, A, to be able to compose my own music with things besides the guitar that would add up, you know, would sound interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, Brian and Peter came from that same thing. You know, Brian was studying composition at the U of O when I met him. Mm -hmm. So, and, uh, Peter was already, you know, established as a, you know, high level recording engineer in the classical music. Field in Eugene. I mean, at, in the early '80s, if you were a classical musician, say you were, you know, at the University or LCC, and you were going to make a do rec- a recital and you wanted a recording, Peter Nastaya was probably one of the two people you called. <laughs> and, and so he was his knowledge of classical music and how to record it was, you know, considered top notch. Mm. And I'm sure he came, he definitely came at it from that compositional sort of thing. Right. And then some of the people like Daryl... He was, you know, had no musical training other than he'd listened to so much music. I, <laughs> When I met him, I immediately realized, that, oh, this, you know, he could talk, talk about Beethoven and classical music. He, he was really big on Rishi Korsakov, Scheherazade. Mm. But uh, he also knew jazz. He knew, like, free jazz, like Coltrane and those guys. And then, he, you know, he knew prog rock. And towards the end of his life, he'd get into heavy metal and, to, you know, like, really deep into bands I never ever heard of. And uh so he was really into music, he just wasn't trained. He knew he had a lot of sounds in his head but he wasn't trained. Mm. And I don't think I don't know I know Carl wasn't wasn't you know he he'll be glad to tell you he never took a guitar lesson.
1: <laughs> and
2: I don't think Nathan was really I don't know about Nathan if he was trained musically or not. Hmm. That's a good question. He was I always said of him, you know, he was an art major. So I thought of him as a visual artist who had taken up electronic music. <laughs>
0: That's interesting. So, that it's kind of equally split in a way, where it's like, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's
2: true. There, there was right half and about half and half.
0: Yeah. Wow.
2: Yeah. I don't. We don't. I don't even remember talking to other people about that at the time, but I'm sure we were probably all aware of it.
0: Mm, okay.
2: And it and it does seem like that was you know the '90s was sort of the branching off point where mm-hmm. it seemed to me there was less of the compositional and more of the Um, All by the school instrument that makes these sounds, and you know, be Rick Wakeman.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: Not that I I don't don't totally admire Rick Wakeman. (laughs) Well, there's a lot to admire there. (laughs) Yeah, there is. Yes is one of my favorite bands.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, every kid kind of goes through that phase where Yes kind of blows their mind.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think right exactly. If you can appreciate complex music, you know, more complex than the, the standard rock band, and you hear Yes, you go oh, wow those guys were
0: on it yeah yeah well and, so, and, it, and it kind of yeah. helps steer you away from uh, staleness which I mean I definitely when I was coming up in the 80s so much music was becoming more and more stale as time went on <laughs> so.
2: yeah no I, I I totally agree and and yeah that'd be another whole topic of you know what happened to music because <laughs> uh, i I think starting in the 90s is when things got really sort of Clam down especially in pop music where right. you know i mean I, I guess i sound like an old person but you know if you go through the radio today and you listen to what's happening it's like the latest hits and then you hit an oldies uh station that's playing some stuff from the you know the late 60s where you hear <laughs> all the yard yard birds or somebody like that mm-hmm. and you just go oh every song sounded totally different then right you know they were <laughs> there's all these, there's a variety, of, and who knew what a pop song might it might have a Archie chord? Maybe not. You yeah. have Jeff Beck, you know, Archie chord, you know, and and now it's like, oh, well, if it doesn't have this kind of beat, you're not going to hear it, mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera It just really, it's like the funnel got really small of what got through into pop music.
0: And this is already happening with like the stuff that I grew up with too, because in the, the you know yeah. 90s, nostalgia is already becoming like a big deal. And so there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. who are, like, reimagining what the 90s were like based on what they remember. And I keep trying to point out, I was like, it wasn't like that. There was still pop music at the time. It wasn't all grunge. It wasn't all flannels. It wasn't all, the you know. But, um, you know, this, I think, happens with almost every decade where you have to talk to people who were there in order to get that perspective, (laughs) you know.
2: Yeah, you do. Right. Yeah, because it it always gets, you know, sort of watered down by different people sort of recollecting, recollecting the same stuff and not the people that remember some other stuff or maybe not getting, getting their voices heard yeah
0: yeah well i do find the early internet aspect of the uh, zines and cassettes so charming and um I, you know with hindsight it's important to point out as well that this was an exception and not common practice what you guys were doing wasn't like what everyone mm. was doing. <laughs> um
2: well, no, there was, there was some of it, and and it, but it was, you know, like you say, the zines, like, you could go down to a, uh, a bookstore, like, a, you know, we used to do this bookstore down in the mall in Eugene, I can remember the bookshelf, I think it was called. Mm. They had a really good magazine section. And you could go down, and then you could see sound choice or option, and our stuff would be reviewed in that. And I was like, oh, it's up, right, there's Rolling Stone, a little ways down there's option. Right, and our stuff's an option, and Rolling Stone thinks you know we do has no idea that what we're doing, the kind of stuff we do even exists. Right. But they're they're both out there, and people can buy them, and they're being distributed across the United States. Mm-hmm. And they're at least were those two, you know, those were fairly what I would consider almost mainstream magazines. They were in a lot of bookstores and things for sure. And then there were there were other ones that were more. Oh, you had to kind of know the people, and then mm-hmm. get get on their mailing list, and you would uh, get them. But it was, yeah, it was It was kind of exciting to see that Oh, well, there was at least some kind of an underground, and again, it was that, that feeling of, oh, well, there's sort of a monolithic wall up against, you know, unknown people and their creative works getting out there. And this was like, oh, there's a hole in the wall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to <laughs> exploit it.
2: Sure I, right, there's a hole in the wall. We're, we're going to take advantage of it, and we'll get through to this, some part of the other side.
0: conversation with Peter Thomas uh, a musician and composer Uh, if you live in the Eugene area I bet you could get some guitar lessons from him Uh, but you might have some luck finding him on the switched on Eugene compilation by the Numero group out now with a number of interesting and uh, lesser known artists from the past Uh, yeah that's uh, I I, I really enjoyed uh, meeting and and then speaking with Peter Uh, that event at House of Records was pretty cool because you got to see all these old dudes reminiscing about making zines and tapes and writing letters and it was just like so much old man stuff in one room it was pretty concentrated and it was a lot of fun uh, so yeah check out the uh, the comp and uh, yeah uh, let's just say there's going to be more action on that front uh, on this podcast so uh, stay tuned for that yeah you know I haven't really had a chance to talk about it much but uh, we have a new home on the interwebitron anywhenanywhere.com uh, that's where you're going to find us that's where everything is kind of based out of and we're pretty excited to have that going so uh Check it out. You know, it's our home away from home. And uh, we hope that uh, you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed making it. That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no show. Be seeing you.
2: No synthesis. I think that's what I was going to say. You know, when I started doing it, that fellow Dave Rahi. Uh, he was doing his book. That, it was going to be called The Secret Guide to Synthesizers, but eventually it was The Complete Guide because The Secret Guide probably sounded too cool for a publishing company. <laughs> <laughs> and and his book was, you know, step-by-step how to work synthesizers based on the ARC 2600. And so I wanna went over to his house knowing, you know, not very much about synthesizers. I'd taken Peter Knopf-Nagel's course, and I had my own Corgue MS-20. So I knew some stuff about it, but I, you know, the Corgue MS-20, some of it is pre-patched and some of it is patching. I hadn't really understood the whole thing about how, th- how the things were working. And when I went over to his house and started using the book, it was like, oh, okay, now I know how a, what an oscillator's doing, and I know what an ADSR is, what an envelope generator does, and... And I could see all the things going on, and he would give you experiments you know you'd say, "Oh, I've heard this sound on the on the synthesizer, and there was experiment ninety four how to make the sound of a you know helicopter or coffee boiling or you know whatever, <laughs> whatever kind of sound
1: wow. and and
2: you would learn how to make those things and and you'd know that, oh okay, this module does this, and if I do this with this module
1: yeah, that's
2: what i get and and that that whole thing disappeared although it has come back with the, the whole Yurok, uh
1: mm-hmm.
2: synthesizer thing. You know, there's analog bleakers out there all over the place, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and we should mention this uh, with a little more detail because you were talking about having a role in the Complete Guide to Synthesizers, which um, mm-hmm. was this book where I guess you were giving advice to the
2: author? Well, what what was happening? He really, I think, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but I think he wanted to have someone go through it and see if it really worked. Mm. You know, if somebody could actually learn from these experiments on their own and and see if they actually did, you know, make sense. Got it.
0: See, he was kind of hiring you as a, like, help me out to make sure that this is really working.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I don't think I, at the time, I didn't realize, realize that. I thought he was just like, oh, he's this cool guy that. You know, that's mm. what the just want. Well, and he's letting me come over here because he thinks I'm interested, and I guess I think I'm a nice guy or whatever.
0: Yeah, well, and this isn't yeah. just <laughs> like anybody either. We should mention that um, uh, we're talking about Steve Rappaport, who was famously in right. the Randells uh, in the sixties. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, um,
0: right.
2: And I, my brother had that record, and I remember, you know, Yeah, I still remember it. And I remember the electronic sounds, you know, it had some of those filter feedback explosions and sweeps at the beginning of it. And I remember him. being a kid, you know, going, oh. And it just seemed weird to me that, oh, this is that guy and I
1: met him. <laughs> <laughs> He's teaching <laughs> me how to play the synthesizer.
0: Yeah, because <laughs> I knew the song the um, cool. d- divorced from any context, you know, just, uh, uh, oh, another space uh, song from the 60s, uh, but then right. to, to read that footnote in here, and and it's kind of buried in your biography in the Switched On Eugene comp, where it's kind of like, right. oh yeah, you worked on this book with this guy, did the Martian Hop, anyway, Peter, <laughs> <laughs> right? And I was kind of like, wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, I thought I thought so too. I was I'm still struck by that, and and David was a really nice guy. Yeah. You know, he, yeah, he was very friendly, and he really knew electronic music. I mean, you know, the guys who knew Peter Notanago were all like, oh, Peter knows everything about it. since David David knew everything Peter knew, and maybe more.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and uh, he, he was just a, a nice guy. He was a very, very sincere person and, and a real musician. Uh you know, besides electronic music, he loved Roy Orbison, and he could sit down and play at the piano all these Roy Orbison songs.
1: Oh, very <laughs> was, cool. It was
2: amazing. And that, you know, that was some, at that time I didn't even know who Roy Orbison was. <laughs> and now I'm like, oh yeah, Roy Orbison, that guy was great. Mm. Well, this is one and of the benefits was, you know, of
0: oh, this is one of the benefits of these kinds of organizations is that not only do you get to meet other musicians and and they also know the struggle you're going through, but you learn about other music through them. And you know.
2: exactly, yeah. Yeah, I definitely, you know, was exposed to a lot of music through meeting the the people in the EMC. Like I said, Brian and Nathan had very extensive knowledge of all kinds of strange music and uh, that they shared. And of course, Peter Nafftega was doing the New Dreamers. You know, I was listening to that before I had met Peter even. Mm. You know, or, or had a synthesizer. I was definitely, oh, wow, here's a cultural show of electronic music on Monday nights at midnight. I
1: got to listen to that. <laughs> Anywhere, anywhere, from our house to yours.